back to the days of Samson. Some of my kids love the story of Samson. But Samson was in constant battle with the Philistines. So the Philistines are his enemies. And yet, because Saul's pursuing him so hotly, he runs to the Philistines for cover, for refuge. And even at one point, it seemed that he would lead the armies of God, uh, to lead the armies of the Philistines against Saul and Israel. That's what the Philistines wanted anyway. He's such a great warrior. It's at that time that David marries a Philistine woman and then births a son named Absalom. Absalom never was uh, able to arise to a legitimate uh, kingship in Israel for several reasons, one of them being his mixed birth. Israel wouldn't accept him as a king. He wasn't of pure blood in a sense. We also know that spiritually, God had in promised the throne of David to his son Solomon. And so that we, all, we know that's ultimately the reason. But Absalom, now you can kind of see the sordidness of David's family life. He, <clears throat> he has children from different marriages. He doesn't do a good job of shepherding his little flock. And he loses control of the emotional um, state of his children to the point that there's war in his own house and he's removed from power. He leaves and, and writes this Psalm chapter 3, our third Psalm, as a prayer to God in the morning as he's rising. Psalm 4 is the evening Psalm. In Psalm 3, David deals with the physical attacks of Absalom and Absalom's army. In Psalm 4, he deals with the mental and spiritual attacks that were levied against him at this time in his life. I believe <clears throat> that Psalm 3 through 7 are a unit. All of them written during this time of exile and persecution and war uh, <clears throat> that David faces. So here's an affliction. Psalm 3 dealing with the physical affliction. Psalm 4 dealing with the spiritual, mental, emotional affliction of a, of a wrecked life. Absalom was wrecking his life. Some of you are at that point, aren't you? I mean, it's hard to identify with a king that's on the run and being hounded, physically attacked. I mean, that's not what we face. But I think as we read Psalm 4, you're going to see your own life here. This is where we face our greatest attack. is spiritually, emotionally, mentally. The attacks of those against us by word rather than by physical force. Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. <clears throat> Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, and in silence. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Then, I mean, excuse me, there are many who say, Who will show, <coughs> show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have, put your, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God is a relief to all of our anxiety. 
David is in great anxiety. And we see it, uh, and any of us would have experienced the same thing. This psalm breaks down simply in three simple points. The first verse deals with an appeal toward God. The second verse through the fifth verse, an appeal about his enemies. And the sixth through the eighth, the resolution or the appeal to God's character and his ability to trust in God's character. So three, three points this morning, quickly. First, when we are under attack, we must make an appeal to God. Notice in verse 1, it says, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. David doesn't make the appeal to his friends. He doesn't make the appeal to his wife. He doesn't make the appeal to his trusted counselors. He goes straight to God. Remember, Psalms are prayers. So David is praying. This is David's language of prayer. He goes to God, not to others. I spoke earlier about the sin of the tongue and how easy it is to sin with our tongues. It is, isn't it? Would you agree? Am I alone in that category? Someone offends you. The easiest thing to do is to do what? Talk to somebody else about it. Someone attacks your character. What's the easiest thing to do? Go on the attack. Attack their character. Someone says something that digs at you spiritually and questions your spiritual integrity. What's the easiest thing to do? To go behind their back to someone else and question their spiritual integrity. That's not what David does. David faces the all-out rebellion of his son. He's run out of town on a rail. He's in shame and disgrace and dishonor. And one of the greatest shames that he faces is the lies that are being spread about him. Remember, I told you, and we read about in 2 Samuel last week, what was Absalom's plan of attack? He came back after his three-year exile. David wouldn't see him for two years. Then David calls him and reunites with him. It's this beautiful, loving embrace. He kisses him, and it seems all is well. But what does Absalom do? He goes to the gate of the palace, and he hangs out there. And when people come with their troubles and their struggles, he says, My dad, he doesn't care anything about you. What tribe are you from? When's the last time my dad was in your neighborhood? Oh, he's become this mighty king. He cares about himself and about all this. But if I was the king, I would hear your case. Personally, I would take interest in you. It was the spiritual and the mental and the emotional attack, the relational attack that David faced from Absalom long before they picked up arms against him that Psalm 4 deals with. When he's attacked, David doesn't attack back. He rather makes his appeal to God. And that's what we should do. When we're attacked, when we are under uh, the, the gossip, the barrel of gossip, or we're standing in the face of a flatterer, it's not our job to attack back. It's not our job to go behind them and then start some other rumor, but rather to go to God. Answer me, O God, he says. Hear me when I call out to you. You are my righteousness. This is a very humble prayer. He doesn't become prideful. Look what he says. It's not that I'm righteous, but God is my righteousness. He recognizes that God is the one who is righteous. David knows his sin. David's well aware of his failure. He's in touch with that, isn't he? When he left Jerusalem, he even tells his followers, don't, don't fight back. They're attacking me. In some ways, their attack is just. I have sinned. I have failed. 
I have committed sexual sin. I have murdered one of my best and most trusted servants, Uriah. I'm guilty in so many ways. Don't defend me because I'm not righteous in myself, but God is my righteousness. He makes His appeal to God in this way. First, God is His righteousness. Secondly, God is His refuge. If you look at the second part of the first verse, it says, You have given me relief when I was distressed. God was His shield, as He had said earlier in Psalm 3. God was His refuge, as He will later say in Psalm 46. God is a fortress. He is a bulwark against the attacks of all the spiritual attacks that we might face. David, in prayer, calls out to God as His righteousness, as His relief or His refuge. Third, God is gracious. Be gracious. He's calling on the character of God. As we saw in chapter 3, in that that third psalm there, he went to God based on God's character and God's goodness. Here he's doing it again. He's going to God saying, I know you are a gracious God. Be gracious to me and be available to me. That's finally what he says in his appeal to God. You are my righteousness. You are my relief. You are gracious. You will hear me. You are available to me. The truth be known, many of you aren't praying. And I know many times I'm not praying. And one of the main reasons is I'm not convinced that God hears me. You ever been there? Just be honest. Been praying, nothing happens. You keep praying, you feel nothing. You pray some more, and then finally you just say, God might hear everybody else, but He doesn't hear me. David never lost confidence in the fact that God is available to him. God is a personal God. Notice all of these things. You are my righteousness. You are my relief. You are my gracious God. You are my hearing God. You hear me when I pray. Not only does it express God's God's character, but it expresses, it begins to express to us the heart of a man who believes in God's character. He trusts God's character. And so I just ask, is that you this morning? I mean, let's just, David is important, but let's not get so wrapped up here with David that we forget that the psalm was written for our good and our benefit. Is that how you pray? Do you really trust the character of God? Do you see Him as good toward you, as gracious towards you, as available to you? Oh yeah, he listens to David. David was the king of Israel, but I'm just a peon living in Calhoun County. Nobody knows me. God knows you. Nobody hears me. God hears you. If God will listen to Hagar, an Egyptian slave in the house of Abraham, when she cries out for relief, God will hear you. God loves you and He is near to you and He has been gracious to you in times past. And in your struggle, in your anxiety, in your attack, in the moment of attack, you need to run to Him, not to others. No one can relieve you the way God relieves No one can minister to you the way God does. Typically, and we need to be mindful of this, people, it makes us feel good when people come to us, doesn't it? We kind of get a God complex. It's easy for pastors to do that. It's happened to me. People come to you with their problems. People come to you with their marriage issues. People come to you with their personal mental struggles. And you start to feel like, man, I can solve all these people's problems. But what we should be doing, Christian, when others come to us is pointing them to Christ. 
when they come and deliver the, the, the bad news to you, hear it, but then turn them to the graciousness of God. All of our counsel should be pointing and holding forth the gospel to them and not our solutions. It's not our job to solve their issues. It's rather God's responsibility to apply the gospel to them. So we can hear them. We can be good friends. We can be good listeners. But more than anything, we need to encourage them to run to God as their relief. Run to God as their graciousness. Because the truth is, you're not always available for your friend. I keep my phone on 24 hours a day. But I'm not always available. I get phone calls sometimes it's in the drawer. And to be honest with you, I'm eating with my children and you're not as important to me at that moment as my children are. You're just not. Or I'm talking to my wife. Or, far be it, I'm watching a ball game. And I don't want to talk to you. God's never watching a ball game. God's never sitting and so busy eating with His children that He can't hear your cry. You're going to fail if you try to be Christ to them. David knew no one was Christ except Christ. Answer me when I cry out to you, God. Hear my cry because you are my righteousness. You are, my, you are the one who has, is, is protecting me, giving me relief. You're the one who has been gracious to me in years past. You are the one. You are the one, God, who, who is available when all else is not available. Secondly, in this passage, we, when attacked, we must make an appeal to our enemies. Now, we don't know that David ever said these words to Absalom or anyone who was against him. Because remember, this is a prayer that we're reading. This is what David said to God about his enemies. But in a sense, he's making an appeal toward his enemies. Look what he says. O men, <coughs> O leaders of the armies which are arrayed against me, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain, meaningless words? How long will you seek out lies? David knows of the attack, doesn't he? David knows that the whole of Israel has been turned against him, or most of Israel has been turned against him by vain or meaningless words and just frivolous lies. Things that are not true. And so his appeal to his enemies is, how long are you planning to do this? How long will you live in your wickedness, is his question. He's concerned for his enemies. You can feel it. I mean, here he is, outcast, in the desert, running for his life, seeking God to protect him. And yet, at the same time, because he seeks God's character, he doesn't hold a grudge against his enemy. He's concerned for them. He's basically saying, listen, how long are you going to live like this? He then, after he seeks after God, and then turns towards the idea of how long his enemies will be the way they are, look what he says in verse 3. Know this, he, he shures himself up with these words. Know this, that the Lord has sanctified or set apart the godly for himself. You can attack me, you can lie about me, you can speak meaningless words, you can take my physical throne, you can run me from the physical town of Jerusalem. You can even, I believe David would say, you can even take my physical life, but you cannot remove me from being sanctified by God. You can't take that from me. You can't steal. That's unassailable. 
God will never lose me and He will never forsake me. How long are you going to attack me? Because the truth is, I'm already in God's chosen people. I'm already set apart for God's own family. I have been accepted on a level that you haven't been accepted. So, when he makes his appeal here about his enemies, he questions their motives and how long they will continue, but he shores himself up with, again, the character of God. God has sanctified me. He has set me apart. The Lord hears when I call to Him. You notice He keeps returning to that. He keeps returning to it because it's so easy to forget when, when things aren't going your way. You've been praying, like I said, some of you have been praying for your children for years that they would come to the Lord and be saved. And I know you have. And you've asked me to pray for them. And I have prayed for them. And yet they still haven't come to the Lord. They still aren't saved. And you're tempted to think, God doesn't hear me. May I encourage you to the practice that David expresses here? Continue to say to God, I know you hear me. Remember in prayer, it's not God who's being changed. It's us. God is not changing. God is not rearranging. But He's in that prayer, we are being changed. Our hearts are being rearranged. We're being drawn closer to Him. So when you're praying, continue to... You notice He said it now. <coughs> he said it now in several ways here in these two psalms, these two prayerful psalms during this time of exile. Hear me. I know you hear me. Hear me. He keeps going back to that idea. So when you're attacked... You had to run to God. And when you're attacked, you have to make an appeal. Your heart will turn when you run to God to make an appeal for your enemies. Don't continue in your wickedness. Don't you know God has set apart a people for Himself? He's making this argument. But He continues with a counsel, with godly counsel in verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. There's some question about how this word should be interpreted from the Hebrew. The Septuagint is the way we get our reading. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason we fall to that is because that's what Paul quotes in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You've heard that verse? Well, this is it right here. And I, so I know there's this big debate, and some of the men I love and respect take the other side, and they say it's not really saying be angry, but rather it's saying tremble, because the Hebrew word can mean tremble. So they say in conjunction with the next phrase, it looks like what he's saying is tremble before the Lord and offer holy sacrifices. Okay? I respect them, but I disagree with them. Why? Because I trust Paul more than I trust them. Paul took the Septuagint. And he quotes it in Ephesians 4.26, so I take that to be the right translation for us in this passage. Isn't that simple? When you just trust the Bible, you run to the New Testament, and you see how they used it, and you say, well, that must be what it means, because they're right and I'm not usually, right? And so I don't even want to get into that real argument. There's no need to for me. What is he saying? He's saying to his, his enemies who are angry against him, and he's saying to his people who are in his camp in prayer, he's saying, we need to be angry and not sin. We need to act not out of anger, but rather when we're angry, we need to act in a holy way. What does he do? Slow down. Don't act on your anger. When you're angry, go to your bed. Ponder in your heart. Be silent. Well, that would save us a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? 
someone's attacking you, they're running you down behind your back, and they're talking, spreading lies about you, and what's you, what do you want to do? Man, you want to give them a tongue lashing. You want to go face them up face to face and tell them how sorry they are. David says, when they do you this way, go to your bed. Lay down, be silent, and ponder in your heart what's going on. I believe he says that because mixed in the lies of gossip and mixed in the intent of gossip is often truth. How many times has somebody said something about you that cuts you and you immediately want to react, but after having time to reflect, you see there is some truth in what they say, isn't there? David says a godly person goes silently, takes time, thinks, prays, seeks God, seeks the good of his enemies, and he doesn't sin when he's angry. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't react. He rather waits patiently. It's the same thing Paul says in Ephesians 4. In relationship with others, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Is an admonition to not let anger fester to the point of sinful action. Don't act on it at all, ever. It's always wrong. And so here we have him praying for his enemies. How long will you continue to attack me? Don't you realize that I'm set apart for the hand of God now? Be angry and don't sin. Be quiet and ponder it in your heart what is true and what is not. He's trusting in a sense. I just think, I take it as I think about it and pray about it. I think he's taking the stance that God, because God is his righteousness, will make known truth in time. I don't have to defend myself. God is my defender. He is my refuge. And so it leads him then to right action. So when we make the appeal to our enemies... We call on them to leave their wickedness, come into the assembly of God, or the righteous assembly of God. Act not in sinful ways, but rather in holy ways. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Finally, in this passage, when we are attacked, we are to make an appeal to God in trust of His character. This is the, further than the first appeal, which was to God, but this now is an appeal to God in action. He's trusting God. There are many who say, who will show us some good? This must have been the, the talk around the camp out in the wilderness. Who's going to help us? Who's going to show us good? Who's going to supply our needs? That was probably a question being asked among the people that were with David. So David says, there are many who are asking this question, but the Lord has shown us favor. Well, how do I see that? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Number 6, 24-26, An aging Aaron blesses the congregation of Israel by saying, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. The camp that's with David that's being attacked and lied about and gossiped about and physically attacked and run out of town is beginning to say, who's ever going to do good to us? And David says, he has done good to us. He has lifted up the light of his face. It's shining on us. We have his favor. Again, we need to do nothing other than go to the New Testament to see what this passage means, do we? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us very, clean, very clearly that the same God that spoke light into darkness has also worked in the hearts of the people that believe in Him to what see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus 
Christ. He has lifted up His face and He has shown us the light of the gospel. So no matter what your problem is today, I don't care if you're uh, just you know, facing struggle, internal struggle, whether you're being attacked from the outside, whether you're facing an assortment of attacks at work, you might be ready to lose your job. You may be losing your marriage. Your children may be in full rebellion against you. I can say with ultimate confidence, God has favor toward you if you're in Christ. He has made the light of the gospel shine forth into your heart from the face of Jesus Christ. So here, David's followers are panicking. Who's ever going to do us good? Who's going to help us? Absalom's winning. I can almost hear the cry from the camp, and David's answer is almost with a chuckle. The Lord has lifted up His face. He has shown His light on us. Not only has He given us favor, but God has given us joy. In verse 7, we see the joy of God extended. You have put more joy in my heart than they have with new wine and grain. You have put more joy in my heart because I find my joy in you. The wine vats will run dry. The grain bins will run empty. But Christ will never fail. That's what he's saying. Hey, if your joy comes from the physical circumstances around you and the ability that you had to provide a good living for you and your family, if your joy comes from your health and your youth, if your joy comes from a family that looks good on the outside and even is good towards you, if that's your joy, David's saying it will fail. All of it will go away, but the joy of the Lord will never fail. He's put more joy in my heart because He has given me His, his favor in the light of His face. He's put more joy in my heart than my enemies have in all of their worldly success and gain. And not only do we have favor and joy, but he says we have peace with God. So at the end of the psalm, what we know has moved from being a conviction of his mind to a conviction of his heart. How do we know it? Look what it says in verse 8. In peace, I both lie down and sleep. Again, this idea of sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make, my dwell, make me dwell in safety. So here David's expressing his faith through his sleep. He's at peace. Many a restless night has been spent turning over anxiety about some spiritual attack or some mental assault that someone's put against you or the, the, the forces that seem to be arrayed against you in the spiritual realms at work or in relationship or friendship. Many a sleepless night could have been avoided had we trusted in God's favor, found joy in Him alone, and then He would offer peace. He would offer peace. David lays down and goes to sleep. Why is that significant? If you think about sleep, it's this one time in your day where you are defenseless. Right? You're absolutely defenseless. If you were fighting a war, the worst thing you could ever do is what? Do what? Fall asleep. Anybody who's ever lived in a trench, when shots are being fired, will tell you they can go hours and days with no sleep. David was in that very moment, and because he trusted, he had made his appeal to God, he had made his appeal for his enemies, and he voiced his appeal to God in a form of active trust. He had joy. He had, he had favor. He had joy. It led to peace. He laid down and went to sleep. Why? Because I know God is on my side. I know that whatever comes, God is my protector. 
He gives me safety. There's no more secure place than to be in the hand of the living God and Him be on your side. He's on your side in the gospel, Christian. He's on your side. He is for you, not against you. He has expressed that through the love of His Son, Jesus Christ. So no matter what your condition, no matter what your struggle, I'm just pleading with you to trust Him today. Be active. Be a doer of the Word. Be active. Don't simply believe it, but live the belief of it. Express it to those around you. Trust Him. He will not fail you. We're going to continue to walk through these five, six, and seven. We're going to see so many great truths. But listen, the kindness of God has been expressed to us in the person of Jesus. Don't miss it. I guess that would be my closing application. Don't miss the kindness of God. In the middle of your suffering, don't miss it. Let's pray.